In his gospel account, Luke retells the stories and teachings of Jesus. We see a picture of the Holy Spirit at work fulfilling the Father's redemption plan through the life and ministry of his Son. He reminds us that the gospel is a matter of the heart, the inner person, not mere external religion. The gospel is a call to reevaluate everything in the world according to God's perspective, not our own. To value mercy over justice, humility over prestige, to value favor with God over favor with people. It's a message of peace, an offering of forgiveness, and an invitation to enter the kingdom of God. The Gospel of Luke. Now, on our way through um, Luke, we're in the last week. We have been for a few weeks of sermons. We're in the last week of the uh, Jesus' life. And uh, <clears throat> uh, we left last week. The, the sermon last week was called To Be Continued. And so this week, we're going to start at Luke 23, and we're going to start at verse 50, even though we studied it last week, and, but you, we need to put that all together. And uh, this is the resurrection. And we're going to take a look at the resurrection this, uh, this week, this Sunday. Uh, we left Jesus on the cross, deceased, last week. And so if you look in your Bibles at verse 50 of chapter 23... Uh, you'll see it says now. Remember, he is, he's, he's died. The people have mostly left. And now we're being told about a man named Joseph who is a member of the council. That's the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council. A good and upright man. Now, it should be good and righteous man. I did say to you last week that if your Bible says upright, stroke it out and put in righteous because the idea here is this man was righteous in the eyes of God. He was a follower of Jesus, and uh, even though a secret follower. And so uh, Joseph was a member of the council, uh, a righteous man, and had not consented to the council's decision and action to uh, kill Jesus. Now, most likely, Joseph was absent from the meeting of the Sanhedrin, and this is Luke's way of affirming that he was a good and righteous man, a follower of Jesus, albeit secretly, until now. Now, in fact, both the Apostle John and Matthew, in their biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, say Joseph was a follower of Jesus. Now, look at verse 51. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. In other words, he was waiting for the Messiah, and he believed Jesus was that Messiah. And going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Now, in Mark's gospel, we learn that when he came to Pilate, Pilate was surprised he was surprised because he didn't think Jesus would be dead already. Normally, it takes a few days. And so he had that checked, and Jesus was definitely dead. There's no question about it. Uh, these uh, centurions who were in charge of all this, they knew how to make sure that a body in the cross was dead. And so in verse 53, it tells us then that he, Joseph of Arimathea, took the body down. Now, that would have been a very difficult thing to do. I can tell you from experience, handling a dead body is all very, very difficult. And he, there's no way one person could have taken that body down from the cross. So he uh, took it down from the cross and uh, 
We know from John's gospel that Nicodemus helped him. Nicodemus is the man that came to Jesus in John chapter 3 at night because he didn't want anybody to know and asked Jesus basically how to be saved. And that's the born again chapter in the Bible. That's where the phrase born again comes again. He said, you need to be born again of the spirit. And so Nicodemus would have helped him and probably some of the soldiers who, if you were here last week, you know that they saw that Jesus was not uh, who uh, all of the mockers were saying he was. They realized that this man is of God. And so then they took the body down, and, he, and he, I'm adding some words on purpose because it would be the custom. He carefully, meticulously wrapped the body in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. And again, we know from John's gospel that the tomb was intended for Joseph when he died So here we have this irony again. It's a picture of Jesus replacing Joseph in death. Jesus died the death we deserve, so we never have to die for our sins, and so we can live a life previously impossible. So now look at verse 54, because Luke is more of a historian. He wants to get it just right. It was preparation day. And the Sabbath was about to begin. The Sabbath was Saturday. Preparation day was Friday. Friday ended in the way they chose to look at time at 6 o'clock on Friday night. And the Sabbath then starts. And nothing can be done on the Sabbath. So we're getting close to that time. And things have to hurry up here. So it was preparation day. And the Sabbath was about to begin where no work can be done. And the women, verse 55, who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph. And these women saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. So they knew where the tomb was and did not return to the wrong tomb, as some skeptics have suggested, without any proof at all. And then verse 56, then they went home, these women and prepared spices and perfumes. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the law, in obedience to the commandment. Now, that would have been a difficult day full of unspeakable sorrow. All that they had seen, the horror of seeing someone, especially someone they loved so and who loved them so, uh, killed on a cross by crucifixion. And it's clear, very clear, and this is important to understand, that these women did not believe Jesus would actually rise from the dead. Now we go to chapter 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, first light, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Now, all four Gospels agree that this was the first day of the week, Resurrection Day, Sunday. The Sabbath would have ended at sunset on Saturday, but nothing could be done while it was still dark. The women would have to wait until first light. The spices were to keep the body from decomposing too quickly. And nevertheless, the fact that they brought the spices proves They did not believe Jesus would rise from the dead. Now, the early church met on the first day of the week because it was a resurrection day. It was a day of resurrection. 
Christianity is defined by the resurrection. There's no religion that has this as their non-negotiable doctrine. If Jesus did not rise from the dead bodily, then we are a pitiable people. We have been deceived by the writings in the New Testament, and we're still in our sins. If you wanted to go to one chapter of the Bible to learn about the resurrection, you would go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul uh, wrote this chapter and the whole of 1 Corinthians to a church called the Corinthian church. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he was handling a problem in the church where some people were saying that there is no resurrection. So here's what he writes. But tell me this, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. We're all going to be raised from the dead. Now, back to the women going to the grave. As the women were heading for the grave, uh, they're disgusting, dis disgusting, disgusting. <laughs> what a day this is for me. <laughs> they are discussing the problem of the heavy stone that blocks the entrance to the tomb. It would have been more than a ton in weight. No one person could have possibly moved it. But to their surprise, verse 2 and 3, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. It's, it's very important, the word Lord. <laughs> and verse 4, while they were wondering about this. Now, wait a minute, wondering. Wondering? Why were they wondering? Well, because they did not believe Jesus would rise from the dead. The reaction adds authenticity to the story. When Jesus, and his follow, when, when, when Jesus said to his followers that he would be killed and then rise from the dead, they didn't think of the resurrection as we know it. They believed that the resurrection would be a large-scale event following Israel's great and final suffering. All God's people would be given new bodies, starting with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the martyrs. No one believed that someone who was dead would become alive again and be walking among them. And once when Jesus asked his disciples who others were saying uh, that uh, he was, some said, well, some are saying you're Jeremiah. And then he, he, they said that some are saying that you're the incarnation of John the Baptist, uh, meaning that Jesus embodied the same spirit of prophecy as John the Baptist. So it wasn't lack of faith 
that kept the women and the disciples from believing Jesus rose from the dead. It was for them obvious he was dead, and that was it until the end of time. Now, the other Gospels report that Roman soldiers were guarding the tomb, and if someone were to try and steal the body of Jesus, these soldiers would protect the tomb with their lives. It's recorded in Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 2. It's on the screen. Here's what happened. Suddenly, remember there's soldiers guarding the body and the tomb. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. And the guards, now these were battle-hardened guards. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. And so what happened? Well, we know what happened just from reading the rest of Matthew's gospel. What happened is the guards, when they finally came to and realized the body's gone, they ran away and, and went and talked to the authorities that were over them because their, whole, their lives are in danger here. And they were told to lie about it and say somebody came and stole the body, which, come on, so who's going to come and, and beat up all these or kill all these Roman soldiers or knock them all out or something to steal the body out of the tomb and move the... It's, it's a ridiculous story. But that was the story they were told. Uh, that's why they weren't... Normally, they would have been, been killed because the body uh, was taken. But they didn't see the body. It wasn't there, and they were terrified. Well, now let's go back to Luke's account in verse 4. While they, the women, while the women were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. It's obvious they're angels. And in their fright, <laughs> in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. Now, their fear was a worshipful fear, not the fainting, terror-filled fear of the soldiers. But the men, these two, said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? In Mark's gospel, he writes it up this way. But the angel said, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here. He has risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now, let's go back to Luke, verse 6. They're saying to the women, remember how he, Jesus, told you while he was still with you in Galilee, and now they're quoting Jesus. The Son of Man, that's Jesus' self-designation, must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Now, we have read these words in several sermons during the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus had made it absolutely clear to his disciples that he was in control of everything and that he was purposely heading toward death and that he would rise from the dead. The first time it's recorded is in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. And here's the words of Jesus. 
I must suffer many terrible things. Now, it says the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things. That's Jesus' self-designation. The Son of Man, they would think of the book of Daniel, of Daniel's scroll right away. And that was a picture of deity of the coming Messiah. And so Jesus, in fact, was saying that I am him. I'm the coming Messiah. So to leave it in the first person, he's saying, I must suffer many terrible things, and I will be rejected by the elders. And he was. The leading priests, and he was. And the teachers of religious law, and he was. And I'll be killed, but on the third day, I'll be raised from the dead. Now, just in Luke's gospel alone, we have a record of Jesus saying that to the disciples six times. Probably said it a lot more than that. But here in verse 8, remember back to the women. Here's these women uh, who are just totally blown away right now. And in verse 8, it says, Then they, the women, remembered Jesus' words. This becomes very important. You'll see later as I go through this. His words, what he had to say, the word of God. Now think about what they saw and what they did not see. The body is gone. The tomb is empty. The grave wrappings are intact, but laying flat. No one actually witnessed the resurrection, but Jesus did appear to his disciples. He even had a fresh fish breakfast on the seashore with some of them. It's recorded in the book of John. Hundreds of others saw Jesus, and when his resurrect ascension took place, many were watching as he rose from their sight, eventually hidden by the clouds as he ascended to the Father with a promise of returning in what we call his second coming. Uh, he, there were lots of scripture telling us about his first coming, and there are lots of other scriptures telling us that he's coming again. Now look at verse 9. When they, the women, came back from the tomb. I like to try to imagine this. I mean, they, they've got to be beside themselves in excitement. So they came back from the tomb, and they told all these things to the eleven, that's minus Judas, who's already killed himself, and to all the others, which would be a sizable gathering, including about 120 who were, we meet in the book of Acts that Luke also wrote. So here they are. Uh, they're coming back, and in verse 10, it says who they were, who the women were, verse 10 and 11. It was Mary Magdalene. Now, here's something that's significant, and I'll bring it up again. Luke 8 tells us she had seven demons. She was a demon-possessed woman that Jesus had driven out those demons. And then Joanna, and then Mary, the mother of James, and the others, that's feminine, other women, with them, who, now I'm going to add a word here for the sake of the grammar, who continually kept telling this to the apostles. Now, so they're, they're saying, we were at the tomb, and these angels appeared to us, and, and we, they reminded us that Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead, and we looked in the tomb, and, and there was all of the stuff. That it was like he just disappeared out of, uh, out of all of the wrappings and everything, and he's not there, and the angels reminded us that Jesus himself said he wasn't going to be there, and this is the greatest thing. And so you got all of these apostles. They were the bigwigs of the group, and what are they thinking? Well, they think the women are off their rocker. That's what they think. But they did not believe the women. Why? Well, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Now, the word nonsense is a medical term. 
and it, 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 it's defined as the feverish ramblings of an hysterical, delirious patient. In, in other words, they thought the women were kind of crazy. And they're women, after all. Now, now really, women. <laughs> Who's going to believe women? In that day, sad to say, but Jesus did a lot to raise women up. But in that day, uh, women couldn't even be a witness in a court. And so they didn't believe women. And they had failed to understand what Jesus had said to them. Or even now, what was reported by the angels according to the women. The apostles, this is very important, they weren't poised to step out and start a new religion at the slightest hint of resurrection. They were utterly skeptical. So question, what did Jesus really mean by rising from the dead? That's a good question. Today, thousands of years later, we have scholars with advanced degrees and multitudes of books who appear, especially at Easter, on every kind of media to tell us the bodily resurrection is impossible. But at Easter, we can believe in the resurrection faith, a chance to resurrect our lives and start over again after the Easter egg hunt. <laughs> but to follow Jesus is to know him, to know him personally. That's different than any other religion. The risen Savior, the one who died for my sins and literally bodily rose from the dead after being cruelly and unfairly scourged and crucified as a criminal. Well, Peter and John, we know John was there because of John's gospel. Peter and John ran to the tomb. In John's gospel, there's a little bit of humor here, John purposely makes it clear that he ran faster than Peter. So verse 12, Peter, however, got up, it says, after listening to the women, and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now, just seeing the empty strips of linen emptied of the body lying flat would have been a mind-bending sight. Uh, Peter had denied Jesus and wept uncontrollably, thinking he could never overcome such a shameful thing. So now he goes away from the tomb, trying to reason through what he just saw and what the women said. And by the way, if the body had been stolen, no one would have unwrapped it and then taken the time to reform, reform the wrappings as if the body just disappeared. Actually, it would be impossible to do that. It would take more for Peter and the others to believe. And more was coming. Jesus spent over a month discipling and preparing Peter and many others before he ascended back to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit who enabled those who believed to tell others about the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. But I've got to go to John's gospel for a minute because I just love this passage. John chapter 20, verse 3, and I've put it all on the screen. Uh, so here's how it reads. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Now remember, this is written by John. John and Peter are running for the tomb. And Peter is writing it in his biography of Jesus, and he starts it out, Peter and the other disciple. Now the other disciple is John. 
So I'm going to change it to the first person a little bit, and you'll get it. So here's what he's writing. So Peter and I, remember John's writing this, we started for the tomb. Both of us were running, but I got there first. I outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And I bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there. Notice he sees that. I looked in the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. And then, then Peter came along behind me and went straight into the tomb. And he also saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. And finally, I, who had reached the tomb first, the head of Peter, also went inside, and I saw, and I believed. But then it says this, and so now we're going to change back a bit. He's writing about he and Peter, but... He says, then they still did not understand from Scripture. He's saying, we still did not understand from Scripture. That's the important point, that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then we, the disciples, we went back to where we were staying. Uh, they had a lot to think about. Now, there are hundreds of Old Testament prophecies describing all that happened hundreds of years before Jesus was born to Mary in the Christmas story. The veracity, the truthfulness of our Bibles is ultimately why we believe Jesus rose from the dead. There have been numerous books written about the truthfulness of the Bible, and I've read dozens of them and been greatly encouraged by them. And I've preached many Easter sermons that include three or five or seven points that prove we can trust the Bible. There's no religious book that accurately predicts events hundreds of years into the future in such detail that could only be described if God knew exactly what was going to happen. There's a plan. And personally, I have never doubted the truthfulness of the biblical stories. I have always just believed them. And if you were to ask why, I would say, well, because of the transformation of my life due to the reading and memorizing and meditating of every part of the Bible. I was an atheist before. I love to argue against the truthfulness of the Bible. I would point out different stories uh, that proved to me that the, the Bible, that Jesus was crazy and the Bible was false. Before I became a Christian... I read literally hundreds. I had a big library of self-help books. And they did change my life slightly. But often the changes would dissipate in a few days or a few weeks. It was very frustrating. So I'd go back to the bookstore, and I would find the latest self-help book again. And it always was the same. I've done it, did it over and over again. The preface would say, this is the self-help book to end all self-help books. This is better than all the other self-help books. And I would read the self-help book uh, through and think, wow, that is better. Fantastic. And then a few weeks later, I'd be opening up another one. And this one eclipses every other self-help book. And I literally had, when I became a Christian, I had a large library of uh, self-help books, psychology books, and stuff like that. But I continued to have to go back because I would get all pumped up, as they say in sales lingo, and, and then it would sort of disappear. But the Bible, after I was saved, continued to transform my life since I committed myself as a follower to Jesus nearly 50 years ago. 
And for me, the greatest proof that what we are reading is true is, is what is written, or maybe I should say what's not written. Scholars who specialize in understanding various types of genre regarding letters and books and poems and myths and legends of history, all are agreed that the Bible, especially the Gospels, are written as eyewitness accounts and not the way a mystery writer would embellish or a legend would be told, and certainly not the way some apocryphal extra-biblical descriptions of the resurrection have been written. And if what we are reading was just made up, it would be very different. It would be far more detailed. It would be obvious the writer is trying to convince us of something he or she hadn't actually seen. Plus, there are significant differences in what Matthew and Mark and Luke and John write. And if their goal was to convince us that this all happened by inventing a story and not just reporting it, they would have made sure they had their facts in line. Nevertheless, the facts reported by each may have their differences, but there are no contradictions. None of the writers saw the resurrection or knew of anybody who had actually witnessed Jesus physically rise from the dead. Women were the first witnesses of the empty tomb. And certainly no one in that day would write such a thing if they wanted their readers to believe what was being reported. And it states that the first person Jesus appeared to was a former demon-possessed woman, Mary Magdalene. Plus, no one among the disciples believed that Jesus rose from the dead, even though Jesus himself told them over and over again he would rise from the dead. But Jesus did rise from the dead. And therefore, the question is this. How are we to now live? That's... This is a message, this is a resurrection message for Christians. It'll be a little bit different when I do a, a, a message on the resurrection on Easter Sunday. But for us, this is the question for us here this morning. How are we to now live? If the resurrection of Jesus does not radically change our priorities, then it's safe to say we probably don't really believe it. And when someone becomes a new believer, their desire for spiritual things eclipses everything else. The Bible becomes alive to them. Before we believe and are filled or enabled by the Holy Spirit, we have no desire or ability to live holy lives. Every time I hear a preacher use the word holy I always, uh, and not define it, I, I, just, I can hardly hold myself back. Define it holy. What's it mean? Because the average person would think something like holier than thou. No, no. Holiness means separated for God's purposes. That's what it means. We're set apart for a purpose that God has for our lives. It's a wonderful word. And after we truly repent of our sins and become part of the church, our desires to be with other believers and use the gifts given us by the Holy Spirit become our priority and our former worldly habits and goals take a back seat to what God wants for us. So let's stop and think for just a moment. What is resurrection? In John chapter 11, we read the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. But that's not what we're talking about here. Lazarus eventually died, and so will all of us. Jesus was raised from the dead never to die again. His revived body 
would never age. No more sickness, no more pain, no more suffering. The resurrection Jesus experienced and we'll all experience is called eternal life. A quality of life different than before our belief in Jesus. We are truly supernaturally changed. And while we live our lives, we will still age and even experience pain and eventually death, but then we'll be raised to eternal life, a quality of life that we've already experienced, only that will become totally different because we'll have new bodies. And as I pointed out last week, uh, we'll be where Jesus is and live a life of unending joy. That's my favorite Christian word, joy, and increased pleasure as we fulfill the purpose for which we were born in the first place. You see, resurrection is hope. No one can live a fulfilling life without hope. We are designed to flourish now and forever, knowing that whatever happens to us in this short time on earth ends in a forever wonderful life. You don't have to keep buying another book when you run out of hope. We have the Bible. And our life well, is never boring, always experiencing joy in the presence of our Father who created the universe for our home. So since I have come, I've come to know Jesus, I'm able to live for him, forgetting about myself, that's my biggest enemy, looking forward to that day when life becomes, as Paul said, better yet. When I became a Christian, I was doing well as a stockbroker, but my first struggle was justifying my money-directed goals. Everything was about me, and I almost quit. Fortunately, someone who was a lot more spiritual than I at the time taught me out of that. Now, I'm not saying that we should never desire to be successful, say, in a sport or in business or academically. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that those desires must be painted by the more compelling desire to follow Jesus and live for he who died for me and rose from the dead so that I can experience resurrection life right now. I mean, we just look at the, 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 the beginning apostles. Peter gave up his fishing business. John left behind his trade. Matthew left a lucrative tax business. Uh, Jesus had a different plan for them, and we're still reading what they wrote 2,000 years later. A fisherman never would have believed that he was going to have a best-selling book 2,000 years later. <laughs> so we admire those who reach great heights in athletics. I'm thankful for those among us who are successful and able to give generously for ministry, and I'm inspired by many who have given up temporal opportunities to serve the Lord in Senegal or Russia or Turkey uh, or Nigeria, as we saw this morning. And I'm inspired by the teachers in our Christian school who could have had lots better opportunities, but they love those kids enough because they're Christians. The gospel believed is life transforming. The gospel believed is life transforming. In Philippians chapter 1, the most positive book of all in the Bible, Paul writes these words. Above all, these are for us as Christians especially, you, we, must live as citizens of heaven right now while we're on earth, conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Jesus. Then, 
Paul writes to the church, whether I come and see you again or I only hear about you, I will know that you're standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. And then ending finally with uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just a couple of verses, uh, Paul writes these words. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scriptures already said. He was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scriptures had already said. That should change our lives. Let's pray. Father, first I want to pray for all of us here in this room and those watching that you will fill us with your spirit and give us a joy, especially at this time of year. Uh, Father, there's such an openness now uh, for people to at least hear about what we believe and people really want to know. And so I pray that we will just all come to you and say, Lord, give us every opportunity possible to be able to tell as many as possible uh, what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is all about. And then, Father, I want to pray for anyone who is here, and I'm sure there's some, and some online, who don't yet know this resurrection life. It's just a theory. It's just an intellectual thing. They're just wondering about it. Well, you can't know until you're born again. And if you've never been born again, then you need to do, uh, you need to agree that Jesus lived, that he died, and that he rose from the dead. You need to agree that he was God and that he came to save us from our sins. You need to agree that you're a sinner. That simply means, even though it's not real simple, it's profound, that we're not perfect and we can't fulfill God's purpose for our life without his help. And so it's called repenting of our sins. And it would sound like this, dear Father in heaven, dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus is God and that he came to die for my sins. I believe that he rose from the dead. And I'm asking that you would come into my life and change my life completely. I want to follow Jesus. And if you pray a prayer like that, you don't have to have every word right. It doesn't matter who you are, uh, how big a deal you are, how small you may consider yourself. It doesn't make any difference what age you are. Uh, it doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. Uh, it's for everybody, everybody, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. And if you've done that, I pray that you would uh, call the number on the screen and, and leave a message, and I'll help you take your next step. And so, Father, just help us to have great joy in this time of the year where we remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray.